This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of October 24th, 2022, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. This is one of the episodes where I have to expose myself as generally ignorant about stuff that adults should know about. By sheer coincidence, it's a particularly morbid topic that's particularly appropriate for the week before Halloween. And that's about as sexy a way as I can introduce our topic, life insurance. IBJ columnist and frequent podcast guest Pete the Planner had a piece in last week's paper with an uncharacteristically sharp rebuke for a reader who was woefully uninsured. And I took it personally because I have avoided getting life insurance despite being in my 50s, married, and the father of a six-year-old. We'll discuss the reasons in this week's podcast, but I am far from alone in wanting to avoid acknowledging the need to plan for my own demise. Pete's take is that life insurance is the foundation of good financial planning, as well as being a good spouse and parent. And just to be clear up front, selling life insurance is not part of his gig, nor is it part of mine. So in our conversation today, we're going to dive into some of the big questions that usually come up when one finally addresses this dark elephant in the room, including how much life insurance is necessary. Here's our conversation. As always, it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Pete Dunn, a.k.a. Pete the Planner. How are you doing? Oh, it's spooky season, and I'm doing I'm doing great for a very exciting topic that people <laughs> love to hear about and to talk about with their loved ones and with their friends. This is the topic of the year, Mason. I know. Uh, I have I have to tell you um, that I am very pleased that you brought up life insurance in your column for the most recent issue of IBJ because my wife and I met with a, a financial counselor this week. And uh, she brought up life insurance, and I at least had your column as a point of reference, which up until that point was the only thing I ever had read, anything I know about life insurance. It has escaped me for 55 years on this planet. It's one of those things that people don't naturally know about and also hate talking about. And I think... It's because the only time you really ever talk about it is when someone is trying to sell it to you. And so your guard goes up and you can't hear them effectively. So uh, I think the rule of thumb or or our ground rules for today are this, Mason, I'm setting my own rules. Uh, I am not here to sell anyone life insurance because I don't sell life insurance, which should have everyone just calm down a little bit, calm down. So let me tell everybody where I am. So I'm a 55 year old, married man with a wife and a six-year-old son. The only reason I have any life insurance at all is because I get this little policy as part of our benefits package. It's like very generous benefits package, a generous (laughs) policy (laughs) as part of your generous. I'm helping you out here, Mason. It's open enrollment. You know, we're going to, I actually, I will use the information from this conversation we're having right now to help me figure out what I need to do in open enrollment, which is like due tomorrow. Okay. 
I have been vaguely aware that I should have life insurance, but I usually get tripped up as soon as I see that there are several kinds uh, and I get confused and I just want to throw it away. I will say there's probably some kind of like cognitive dissonance going on in that life insurance always sounds like you're betting against your own demise or you're betting on your own demise. And I will say not to pawn this off on my parents like I do everything else. I don't remember my parents ever talking about life insurance. We talked about the stock market a lot. We talked about real estate. We talked about saving money. We never talked about insurance. Of course not. Well, what what parents going to go to their kid and be like, hey, uh, uh, Timmy, when I die, uh, first of all, you get my baseball card. Like, yeah, so this is, the, this is the topic that people don't naturally talk about. I want to correct one word you used. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. But you said betting on your demise, uh, acknowledging your demise. And that's where the conversation begins. This is not if, it is when. We are acknowledging our mortality. And that's how you have to begin the conversation with life insurance, which people don't like to do. So can you at least acknowledge your demise? Yes. Here comes the um. butt. <laughs> Here it comes. Everybody listening for it? Shh. I would like you to come at a point of my choosing. <laughs> that, um, I don't know if there's a Netflix show that's about that yet, right? Like, um, I hear you. I hear you. Um, but I just think it's important to acknowledge that we're trying to protect your family in the, if that's what you want to do, for a period of time. Uh, and, and by acknowledging that the demise could happen within that period of time helps you make better decisions with your gener- generous benefits package there at work. Tell me that I'm not the only husband and father out there who is woefully underinsured. What if I said you were? I'd be lying. But what if I, what if, <laughs> does it change the conversation? Um, no, of course you're not. And, and I, there's some that I, I wanted to talk about knowing we we're going to have this conversation today. And I want to talk about it in a respectful way. But it's something that always bothers me every time I see it. I made reference in my column, quite a glib reference. And it's this concept of every time you see a GoFundMe pop up mm. for the local dad who helped out at the Little League uh, and he passed away and you see the GoFundMe pop up, uh, that is generally an indication that the person was underinsured and didn't have stuff going, you know, in, in place. And it makes me sad. Um, I feel like I understand it on a deeper level, having you know been a financial planner in the past. And so, I don't know, if nothing else, Mason, I think this is a journey to make sure that, that your family is not served by the generosity of strangers, if you know what I mean. I know exactly what you mean. I've, I've known of a few young fathers recently uh, who have passed away in, in both cases. Uh, there it, literally was a GoFundMe. Yeah, look, there... I've contributed to them, right? Like, I i mean, we're not being callous here. We're just saying, I think there's a way to acknowledge your demise and uh, appropriately take care of your need. And you mentioned the different types of life insurance, which I think is an interesting place to start, not to derail you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you start with the type of life insurance by saying, we'll figure that part out later. Let's figure out how much you need. Because I think if you start with what type do I get, you miss a giant opportunity to get the right amount because what you'll do is you'll say, well, I want this type, but this type's more expensive, so I can only get this amount of it. And the second you do that, you've made a massive mistake. And so we want to avoid that mistake. I actually wanted to bring that up because I was you know, doing what everybody does. I was doing the online calculator and I was shopping for the premium. Yeah. I was like, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't think I can do more than 250. 
whatever. And so that was that was guiding my decision making in my first exploratory look at at the the rates. Yeah, life insurance when when you buy it, it's one of those things that you have to have the right amount as though something happens to you tomorrow. By something happens to you, what I'm saying is you're dead, right? You have to have the right amount as though you die tomorrow, but you also have to have the right amount that you die 30 years from now and that amount still matters. And that's the complexity of this is that once a, 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 I was gonna say, a, once a family person, once a person who's trying to protect a family makes this decision, they typically don't want to revisit that decision for decades. And that's how they can find themselves misinsured or underinsured. And so uh, let's walk through some of the things that you're actually trying to insure. What are some of the things that you're trying to economically replace when you are, um, when you're dead, right? Spooky oh, hey, season, right? Yeah. Let me jump in real quick, because maybe we can let some people go from class early. If I'm single, do I need life insurance? Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes. Now, um, here are the most compelling, in my opinion, uh, reasons why. Uh, if you're single now, that doesn't mean you'll always be single. Uh, so there is hope. Uh, not that you want to hang out with someone else all the time, but if, if you fall for that whole prank and you end up with somebody, maybe you will need life insurance. So part of this Mason is about what we call future insurability. So if I'm 25, which I'm clearly not, if I was 25 and single and I didn't get married till I was 45, there's chance there's a chance that medically I'm in a different situation within that 20 year period where I may become less insurable or uninsurable uh, because of my my medical history that had developed. And so by buying life insurance as a young single person, you guarantee insurability, which is prudent for some people. Right. So when, if I get like a 20-year policy, they're, they're not going to evaluate me every year to make sure I'm still insurable. I've no. got it for 20 years. No. Do they... They are going to evaluate. They're going to underwrite you at the uh, time that you purchase the policy. Um, and then what happens is you, you just mentioned something interesting, a 20 year policy. What that typically means is that the premium you pay is level for 20 years. It does not increase. What often happens is in that 21st year, you still have the coverage, but then the premium sets to what your age is at the time. Okay. So th that's where it gets a little interesting. So when my uh, son, my youngest child was born uh, 10 years ago, I got a 25-year policy uh, on, on my life, right? So that's to say I bought 25 years worth of uh, protection and sleeping well at night. Uh, and otherwise, it was up to me to become financially viable within those 25 years to then take care of my significant other in the event of my passing. But my kids are out of the house and, and theoretically taken care of at that point. Okay. Is there another reason why uh, a single person might be want to get life insurance then? You know, honestly, I, I know some people that have just said, I just want to leave money to people who want to die. And I want to, I want to use life insurance as a multiplier. Now you do have to prove a case for, um, you know, why you need life insurance to some degree. You, you have to say, why is this person, what's the, what's the purpose of the purchase? Now that's not that strict. I mean, it's, it's not that big of a deal. They're going to still sell people life insurance. However, some single people want it. Some people who have debts that aren't going to be forgiven at death want to make sure that their loved ones aren't uh, burdened with those debts. And of course, there's the term in the industry called final expenses, which simply means 
your final party. Uh, sometimes it costs something, you know? Okay. But in, in my case, and probably many uh, people's cases, we have uh, people who want to care for after we die directly, our spouses, our kids. Spouses, our kids, our debts, like a mortgage. Um, and, and ultimately, what you're trying, this is the way I think of it. You're, when you die, your income dies. And so you need to replace your income if your income is dependent on. And in my house, my income is dependent on. So when I die, there needs to be a giant check to replace my income. We'd already started talking about term insurance. So let, let's get that's the first kind. Let's say number one is term life insurance. Yeah. And term is there, you, you are, you are, guaranteed the premium stays at a certain level for a, a, a period of time. It is a term. So oftentimes a, a policy will go to age 70 or go to age 90, but you're getting that level uh, level term, the level uh, premium period. Uh, but, but term just means there's no cash value and it is not permanent. It, it is not indefinite. It, it, it ends at some point in time, which for a lot of people, a lot of young families, a lot of older families, is the most affordable way to go. It will allow you to get the proper face amount, the proper death benefit, but it puts the onus on you from a financial feasibility standpoint to make sure that you're building that nest egg because when that term expires and you are no longer insured and you die, then you've been paying on all of this insurance and then your, your survivors are dealt whatever cards are left, you know? Right. I'm going to back up again, though, uh, which was the thing that we had talked about earlier. How do I know how much I should get insured for? You got to love rules of thumb. Uh, there's an old one that says 10 times your income is an interesting place to start. So if you go, well, we'll just pick some. Let's say you make $75,000 a year, or then you would typically need about $750,000 of life insurance. Now, it's not a perfect rule of thumb because it doesn't take into account necessarily what your mortgage uh, expenses are, you know, how many kids you have and how many college educations you theoretically need to pay for, and then maybe any other debts you might have. So um, I will say, though, it's a heck of a starting point. Sometimes you end up a little less than that. Oftentimes you end up a lot more than that. But uh, t 10 times your income is a great place to start. In your column, you use an equation uh, where you you take the the benefit, let's say it's a million dollars, and then you assume that uh, your your spouse or your survivors will invest that in something that makes 4% annually. Right, um, you know, we're, I hate to say it, we're not too far off from sticking it in a bank account and getting 4% once again with uh, interest rates where they are. But but what I'm saying is maybe whether it's municipal bonds or something like that, you're, you're able to generate 4% net, you know, after tax 4%, in perpetuity, so that $1 million would generate $40,000 uh, a year. Okay, so good, I understood that, that's well, good. <laughs> that's, that's, that is good, and I will also say there's, a, there's, a there's an old saying in the life insurance business that the face amounts a lot, but the income's not. So what that means is sometimes you'll, you'll hear someone say, well, I've got $3 million worth of coverage, and, and that feels like a lot of money. It's the old sleep with one eye open situation, but but if you if you do it with that income in perpetuity formula, that's only one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year of income in perpetuity without touching that principal. So face amounts a lot, the income's not. Is that money? Um, say I die and the 
million dollars goes to my survivors. Is that money taxed? Should no, no, no. It, okay. is, it is tax free. So we have we have term insurance, and then the other one I gather the other major one is whole, often called permanent. So whole or permanent, and you're going to hear a variation of that sometimes called universal life or index universal life. But but permanent or whole is is really the main category, and what that means is you own it. You're not renting the insurance. You own the insurance and it builds cash value. It builds equity like your home would. And at some point in time, if you so wanted to, you could use that equity you, like a home equity loan uh, on, a, on a home. And you could, you could take it, you can spend it. Um, and oftentimes, depending on your financial advisor, this can be a strategy for retirement that you can build a cash value life insurance plan and you can receive tax-free income from it based on some rather complicated formulas. But yeah, that's that's the nature of whole or permanent life insurance. So this strikes me as being very complicated. Uh, and my, my brain automatically is going, oh, no, thank you. Well, you, what your brain is probably saying on the surface is that sounds expensive. And, and you're right, it is a lot more expensive. And what happens in this world of insurance, and, and I'm sure you've heard this before, um, people love big general blanket statements like, this type's always good, and this type's always bad. And I just think that's lazy, frankly, because uh, permanent life insurance or whole life insurance makes sense for some people. And those same people term insurance would make no sense for them whatsoever and vice versa. So I wouldn't get too caught up when people start saying, well, what's the good kind? I mean, that's that's a that's a lazy thing. Uh, every situation is different. Well, who uh, would whole insurance make the most sense for? This is my opinion, which is the nature of our relationship. Um, so I think if you have exercised most of your tax havens, uh, you, you've maxed out your 401k, you've maxed out your health savings account contribution, you've maxed out your 529 contribution, and you still have so much discretionary income that you are looking to set it aside in a tax sensitive way for the future, life insurance can be a really great way to do that. Uh, it has a similar tax treatment, similar, to a Roth IRA, which is often considered one of the most attractive tax vehicles, um, tax sensitive vehicles. So what I'm saying is if you got a lot of income, a lot, and you don't need a lot of it, and, it's, and it is um, more or less guaranteed to be that amount forever, right? So what, what I'm saying is if you're in a career where you think your income could dip 30% five years from now, you would not want to buy permanent life insurance because the premium requirements are so much higher that if your discretionary cash shrinks, you're not gonna be wanting to pay $2,500 a month for life insurance when when you just wanna go out to eat, but your income shrank. Can Yeah, can we ballpark it like in, in terms of, well, your premiums are probably gonna be at least in the thousands a month or uh, 8,000 a month? It just totally depends. I mean. You know, uh, if you're paying $150 a month for a million dollars worth of term coverage, I'm, you know, you'll probably pay close to a thousand, maybe more. Now, here's what's going to happen in the comments of when you post this podcast on ibj.com. People are going to come in and tell me how wrong I am with those numbers, but that's okay. Uh, that's why I said ballpark. Um, 
Yeah, but it's but not yeah, like a multiple more. of two. I mean, it's no, it's it's significant. It's not necessarily yeah, it's not necessarily ten, but it's it's approaching that. Okay, yeah, but from the you know the online exploration I I did the last couple of days, that sounds like what I was seeing. But yeah, yeah there's yeah. You know, there's a good amount of sticker shock there for folks who don't have a lot of income. Here's my biggest beef with permanent life insurance, and 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 it's that people buy it. And then six or seven years into owning it and making the payments, they forgot why they bought it. And so they stop and they've, they've ruined a, a reasonable opportunity, right? So they bailed too soon. They didn't even really get to see the benefits of it other than the, the face amount protection. And then it becomes a mistake. And then they'll look back on it. They're like, well, I never should have done that. It's like, well, I don't know about that. Here's what I know. Um, you just lost focus, you became disinterested, and you created your own problem. Now, Mason, that's why I said a person needs to have a steady, reliable income to do it. Because for other people, most people, I don't know, do most people say, well, I have a steady, reliable income. I know attorneys do. I know physicians do. The rest of us, I don't know. I don't know if I would say I have a reliable, stable income. I'm, I'm not sure. Would you describe yours that way? <laughs> exactly. I, really, I don't know. Uh, right. You know, you know, uh, it, yeah, in general, you know, uh, from what I know about my profession, I would say I've been very, very, very fortunate uh, to work where I do for so long. I would agree with that. And would we not be remiss if we didn't mention that even after you have left us, these podcasts will live on? <laughs> hey, that is that is my legacy for Indianapolis, <laughs> and, and you're tied to me, which is even worse for you. Um, and I, I'm, I'm being. Well, it, it would certainly certainly help if you didn't flood the market with podcasts. Then they would oh, be yeah. worth more. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 625 attorneys across 11 offices, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ podcast and my discussion about life insurance with Pete the Planner. Now, let's talk about group life insurance because that's what the, the generous benefits package you have at the Indianapolis Business Journal. Um, and, and here's group life insurance. Typically, while you work there, your um, employer will provide an amount, one times your income, maybe you can supplement that with two or three times your income, maybe blocks. Sometimes life insurance is sold in blocks, 100, 250, 500,000, those are blocks. Yeah. And group of life insurance is typically not portable, which means when you, when you leave your employment, uh, you can't take it with you. And so that's the worst part about group life insurance is that if it is your primary source for life insurance, then if you ever leave your job, then you are left without life insurance, maybe at a period in time in your life, which you might not be insurable, or you go to get it in the open marketplace. And based on your age at that time, it's wildly expensive. So when you go to sign up at open enrollment, one of the first things you want to look at is, is this portable? Can I convert it 
in the event that uh, I leave my job and then that will help you make a better decision. Oh, wow, that's really good to, to know. Now, if uh, I have a spouse, should both spouses have life insurance? I think so. It's my opinion. Uh, but it, it, a lot of it revolves around, are, are there people in the household that you collectively take care of? Um, it's we're not too many decades away from when uh, only men worked, okay? And so what would happen is, um, let, let's say that the, the, the stay-at-home mom passed away in the 1970s. How did that go? Did a family member just pick up the slack? I mean, in, in the modern society in which we live in, there is an expense associated with with childcare, and so if there's not a pool of money that helps unburden the survivor with those expenses then it's a missed opportunity so i always think especially any stay-at-home parent we need some amount of coverage to create a pool of care uh, to, to take the burden off the sole worker who is then a single parent uh, gotcha. so yeah definitely so this is the uncle charlie clause if you don't have an uncle charlie yeah, that's that's true. The, and, I believe that's what they call it is the Uncle Charlie clause. I yeah. your research has been amazing. And who long? Who knows how long Charlie's going to stay around? Yeah, I think um, I will say this: different married couples need different amounts, right? Uh, yeah. Income is part of that. Uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a it's a tricky one because sometimes when you buy term life insurance, you can get something called a spousal term rider. That's it was also the name of my garage band. Say. <laughs> In high school, you know, I think they have, they, have, they have a product at Sybaris. I think that is that that is the that, yeah. spousal term writer. <laughs> yeah. That one term's not in that one. The spousal term writer. It just means, hey, if I'm buying five hundred thousand dollars of life insurance for just a few bucks more, seriously, uh, you can add a hundred thousand for your spouse. So that's an interesting way that that deals with that one working income. Uh, besides the uh, the group insurance, is there any other major insurance category we need to know about? Well, I mean, sometimes you you hear about A, D, and D, which is different than AD's, ACDC. A, D, and D is accidental death and dismemberment, which is a lot more fun to, to say than it is to talk about. Um, basically, what happens is if, if, if your death is accidental um, or dismemberment's involved, it, it, it either pays out differently, meaning it might pay out double or something like that. But... Uh, you know, I see fewer and fewer of those policies these days. Not that I look at policies all day, but it's not as common as it used to be. I know also hear mortgage insurance sometimes, which is different than PMI, which is private mortgage insurance, which just protects the bank in the event that you default. Mortgage insurance is life insurance marketed as mortgage insurance. So the event that you pass away, your survivor uh, has the mortgage paid off, which is, again, another form of life insurance. If we, if we go back to term or even, you know, somebody who has whole and, and wants to try time the market, as we say, hmm. um, how long should I insure myself? Like I'm 55. Should I only insure myself until I'm sure that I'm not going to have a regular income? If I were your financial advisor, number one, I would make you take me out for drinks. Number two, hmm. uh, you have a six-year-old, right? I do. Okay, so um, I think bare minimum, you, you get the six-year-old till 22 years old, which would theoretically get him out of college. So I'll do the math. That's 16 years, bare minimum of what you would want maximum coverage. So you will never need more than you will need right now, theoretically, 
and the same amount for the next 16 years. And I would, so what I would do is probably round up because policies aren't really sold in 16 year blocks. You probably need a 20 year policy. Um, and, and it would just need to be the right face amount during that period. Is there a point at which I would be too old for life insurance? Like so old that they just wouldn't insure me. You remember those uh, infomercials like between game shows and stuff, like whether it's Gerber life or, you know, uh, for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can insure. It's like one of those things. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there is what's called guarantee issue life insurance. Um, f- f- in smaller amounts, it's like $10,000 of permanent coverage. But other than that, Mason, yeah, you, you actually can end up being too old for t- traditional coverages. I'll say this. Um, I hit 44 years old a lot faster than I thought I would, right? So I remember when I was in my 20s and as a financial planner, life insurance was part of my practice. And you know, I would look at rates. And I'm like, oh, this isn't bad. I mean, I looked at rates today in anticipation of our conversation and they were you know, higher than I think. To, to get the sort of coverage I would need, I think my quote was somewhere between 160 to $220 a month of term coverage for a 20 year policy. I, I bought the same policy 10 years ago and it was $95 uh, yeah. a month. So, you know, it can go up by about a hundred bucks a decade. So this is a, this segues to an interesting question because as we've, as we've discussed, we have a 529 plan, a college savings plan already uh, for the boy. And we we're, we've amped up uh, how much we put in monthly. So that's in motion. We both have 401ks that we, uh, contribute to. My question is, all this gets pretty expensive and my budget gets tighter. If I could have a million dollar insurance policy or max out my 401k, or maybe get the platinum Cadillac health insurance plan, which is more important? I will say this. I don't think life insurance is even near the top of the list of things that are cut first. I think life insurance is a must. Then there's the buying of the life insurance. We're all afraid of life insurance salespeople, but they're going to give us something that costs too much money uh, to pad their own pockets. That, Of course, not everybody is like that. Uh, it's a horrible cliche. But how do we go about buying it in a way that we can feel confident about? Yeah, it is a, it is a terrible cliche, actually. Um, Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not, like most cliches. Well, um, you're gonna get a needs analysis, right? You're gonna start with how much do you need? You have to start there. Because if you start with the default of, we're gonna get a certain type, you're gonna make a mistake. So how much do you need? Okay, here are the two main types, term and permanent. You look at A, uh, can I afford them? B, do I have other financial objectives? like? Am I trying to get rid of income from a tax perspective? Do I have stable income for a long time? And and that can guide that decision. But but then it's where it gets interesting. Then a a mobile nurse comes out to your home and they take your blood. You leave them a sample of your urine. They weigh you, ask you a number of uncomfortable questions. And then a few weeks later, they make the determination after they've gone through your medical records of whether or not they want to insure you for the price they said they're going to. <laughs> Some people hate giving blood. I've had people back when I was a financial advisor, like, I don't want to do it because I hate giving blood. It's like, okay, so wait, 
you you're going to leave this to chance because you don't want to give a vial to blood you're okay with your family sort of swinging in the wind they're like yep that's that's the math dude i had cancer i i feel like i gave blood every week for about five years i just learned something about i I have a a favorite place actually yeah (laughs) oh my gosh yeah right there visuals are always good on the radio i yeah i'll put a picture up okay good people of my (laughs) of my forearm of my face but you know what? You you mentioned the cancer. That is a pre-existing condition that can affect rates, right? So I mean, yep. that's a factor. And I will say that's why the group coverage, the very generous benefits you have at the Indianapolis Business Journal become so important because most of that is guarantee issue. And that also means that if you have supplemental coverage there, it can also be guaranteed issue. Sometimes it's not that that means you can get affordable coverage that potentially you otherwise wouldn't be able to get in the open marketplace because you have a significant health past like the cancer you mentioned. Right. Let me go back to the buying now. So everyone I'm sure nowadays is going to approach us on the internet and they're going to think, Hey, I'm, I should be able to just buy this on the internet and, and uh, look at these split. I'm done. Is that not true? It's certainly easier than it used to be, but you still have to get uh, medical exams and all of that. And okay. it, it takes some of the the sales pressure out of it for sure. Or I could work with a salesperson or broker. Yeah, look, I I have a trusted insurance professional. I, I, I talk to my insurance agent. He calls me when he thinks I need something and it's a good relationship and I trust him. It's like a mechanic, right? It's like, yeah, okay, I, I, you're my trusted mechanic. I will do what you say. Um, if you don't have that person, I think it behooves you to have your insurance with someone, even if it's your property and casualty insurance, like your automobile insurance, because they're looking out for you. And that's a relationship. If you're calling some rando and just asking them to sell you things, then you're kind of going to get what you ask for. My friend, it is a, it is an uncomfortable topic, especially in the world that we live in today, where everywhere you look, a flag's at half mass because some other horrible tragedies occurred. Like it's been a rough few years. And so to have this serious conversation about our own mortality in the face of facing our mortality for the last two years, it's tough. It's hard. And so I just encourage people to, if you felt despair over the last couple of years of, of fear, let yourself go a little bit further and paint the picture of if you're gone, what happens to your family? And maybe that completes the task for you. My thanks again to Pete Dunn. And a quick reminder, his column on personal finance appears regularly in the print edition of IBJ, and you can find several years' worth of his work at IBJ.com. And before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest print edition of IBJ I want to point out. First up, Peter Blanchard reports that state officials are exploring the idea of tapping into the aquifer along the Wabash River in Tippecanoe County to meet the water demands of a new innovation district planned for Boone County. Experts say the concept is feasible, but execution could be very expensive. Also in this week's issue, Dave Lindquist sheds light on the eclectic music venue and art space Healer that's beginning to shed its reputation as one of the city's best kept secrets. And John Russell explains how the IU School of Medicine is using mouse brains to try to solve the riddle of Alzheimer's disease. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at IBJ.com. 
I will say it's easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And here's a new development. We have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And now it works out to just about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana Story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.